Shank Bagley. Shank Bagley. Shank Bagley. Hello and welcome to Shat Bagley, an old Lincolnshire adjective to describe absolutely anything loose and disorderly, which sums up this Lincolnshire last quite nicely. My name is Katie Johnson and in a moment we'll talk slow food and hairy deer, meet Karen Wright from Bake Off and hear from one of Nigella Lawson's favourite food writers. First though, with it being episode 11, here are a few things with the same number. Cups of coffee drunk daily per capita in Sweden, the world's most prolific coffee drinkers. Oscars won by Ben-Hur, the first film to achieve the record in 1959, a record equaled in 1998 by Titanic. And interestingly, 11 is also the record number of Oscar nominations for a film that failed to win any, including The Colour Purple back in 1986. Also, it's the recorded accidents in the home in the UK in 1994 involving drinking straws. Hmm. Sorry I couldn't be with you last week. We spent a few days away in Cornwall with some friends. Somewhat of a pilgrimage, really. Um, Mum and Dad used to take the family to Mevagissi every year. So I know I stayed there 15 years on a row and probably 40 plus years since I'd last been. That's giving my age away, isn't it? Wonderful time, it's still a working harbour with fresh caught fish sold on the harbour side. Uh, took a trip on a boat and I do recall there was a Mr Pollard who would take us mackerel fishing and when I asked um, one of the, um, the fishermen on the harbour, his son still runs the business. Visited Port Isaac where Doc Martin was filmed and where fishermen's friends hail from. Definitely will be going again. Hopefully the journey home won't take quite as long. Set off 10.15 in the morning, arrived home nine hours later. I know. Yes, it was slow. Ah, oh, which brings me nicely to my first guest. Andy Link is the multi-award winning chef patron of the Riverside Inn in Ame Street in Herefordshire, which currently holds the title National Slow Food Award for the Best Restaurant in the UK. Slow food began in Rome in Italy in 1986, at the Spanish Steps to be precise, but do we know why? I've heard it was kind of a protest on the steps, that they were combating against fast food movement and trying to make sure that we don't lose our kind of food heritage, mainly in Italy to begin with, but it's kind of spread worldwide now and they do a lot of projects in kind of Africa and, and all over the world, just making sure that we keep supporting those traditional and slower food practices. Mm. Because when people say slow food, it's not that it's going to take 22 minutes to come out of the kitchen. It's the ethos, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, a lot of people get that wrong. And when we won uh, the, the award last year, we had a few people stop with us and they were like, we thought there'd be more slow braising and casseroles on the menu. <laughs> um, but it is purely about the kind of ethos and their ethics and and just championing the more traditional methods in from ingredients and those kind of things that can get lost as we as we kind of move towards a fast food lifestyle and it it's yeah it's about supporting those things and making sure that they don't get lost in history we've worked with slow food for a number of years now and it's kind of it's been core to the business and and me personally just i grew up on a farm and it was a traditional kind of organic farm my dad's a shepherd for me those principles fit and then they they also work with the business we've got large kitchen gardens and stuff like that so for the link with slow food and then the awards that came later 
it all kind of made sense to us. So we would be championing that without the award or without Slow Food, but they're a great organisation and and a, a great part of our business and they've been a real support over the years and for us it's it's about trying to kind of give back and make sure we're doing the right thing for our customers, for the local producers in the area. How many years ago was it you went to the, the homeland, didn't you, Italy, with the slow food? Um, I'd say about six years ago now. Um, I was lucky enough to get invited to Turin. It's called Terra Madre, which is like an it's annual to biannual event where the whole streets of Turin are filled almost like a giant food festival, but with, with producers from all over the world. So again, there was Eastern European countries, African countries. There was, from across the whole world, there was kind of unique food producers, chefs, and throughout the whole city then there's events, there's there's tasting menus with Michelin star chefs and all sorts. But it was just a really good way to kind of absorb different cultures and see all these traditions and kind of learn a lot. But you can kind of see that food food represents cultures, but it's the same in every country. There's just people that are really passionate about ingredients and, and what they're doing and, and they love it so much and it's always just nice to see that that's kind of universal. What did you bring back from there? Because you, mu- you must have been well, quite overwhelmed a bit, I think. Um, again, it was just it was interesting to see how kind of how much passion there is around the world, and that that is such a universal thing. So for me, it was really great tasting some different chefs and different producers' food, and kind of learning that you you, you don't stop learning. If that makes sense, it's. Uh, there's so much information, especially around food and stuff like that, that you can pick up all these different techniques and and things that have been in some cultures for not only centuries but thousands of years. And actually, that heritage is more important than anything, and it's it's good not to lose that. So, for me, when I came back after that trip, it was a case of I did a lot more research onto what ingredients are British and what Herefordshire and Shropshire and those counties what we're passionate about growing and what farmers have actually been doing for a long time from different breeds in the area to different random ingredients that actually can be lost whether it's Mortimer Forest venison or whether it's why we imported the damson or there's foraged ingredients that we're using now like ground elder which the Romans brought over during their invasions that they fed the troops on there's there's so many different ingredients that that have a history and, and I think that trip made me realise that and made me more passionate about promoting it to our guests. I wish the Romans hadn't brought ground elder over there, <laughs> to be honest. They? It's, a, it's a nightmare in the garden, but it's really tasty. So um, it's definitely worth cooking with. So that's always what we've kind of championed, those things that can get frustrating. Nettles, ground elder. There's so many plants that you can eat that saves you weeding and then you, you can pretend like you're growing them on purpose. A bit of revenge when you <laughs> back the head off the top of a nettle. Those, um, the, the deer incredible in Mortimer Forest which isn't far from where your restaurant is are we the only ones that is it now they say they're hair is it hairy yeah it's a, they're a long-haired fallow deer so they're unique to Mortimer Forest and to be honest it always thinks well if they're unique or slightly lesser known that maybe there's a conservation aspect but deer can be very destructive to the environment and they need carefully managing so it's not necessarily about a case of oh we've got to eat this product but it's more about sharing the information about the kind of the breed and and how important venison is in terms of nutrition but also they can be destructive to agricultural land so it's more about just sharing the story about 
what we should do with a product and how we should support it and, and develop it so that it's got an ecosystem to live in. But equally, then we manage the numbers very carefully to make sure that we get a kind of nutritious thing. We can provide a food source, but we're actually we're telling the story about how it works with the environment and how, how, how we can kind of protect and, and support it so it's not lost. Do we know why they're long-haired? And it's mostly on their ears, isn't it? I was wondering, yes. is it protection or something? I don't know. I think, I think like a lot of these animals and stuff, they've, they've kind of developed for their natural habitat. So I think you get different types of deer in different areas, but the fallow deer is quite common in this area, fallow and roe. But this one just seems to be specific, but I'm not sure if it's kind of a, a, a kind of evolutionary trait, but it's it definitely, maybe it's colder on that hillside, but it's 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 definitely something that's just a, a unique to this kind of area of Herefordshire and Shropshire. So, yeah, it's strange. Huge thanks to Andy Link from the fabulous Riverside in Amestry. And yes, the long-haired fallow deer has a hairier tail, a head and ears, and it also comes in a variety of colours. First noted in the 1950s and, as we mentioned, limited to Mortimer Forest. And it's likely because the population was isolated and a gene mutation had occurred. Fascinating. And the fast food restaurant that was going to be built at the Spanish Steps all those years ago, and the reason slow food movement began, was McDonald's. Uh, interested to hear if you have a slow food movement where you are. I, I'm going to rephrase that. That's, that doesn't sound right at all. Um, are you a member of slow food, perhaps where you are? That's better. Always good to hear from you. I'll also pop a link to Andy's restaurant on Shat Bagley's Instagram and Facebook pages and also a picture of the deer. That's if I can find one. Just going back to Cornwall for a minute. Something happened, I have to tell you. The couple we went with, uh, Jules is a vegetarian, has been for a, a long, long time. So we went for proper fish and chips at a very well-known establishment and um, she chose the halloumi burger with vegetarian chips. It said vegetarian chips as the ones we were having were cooked in beef dripping so the lady came and, and took our order and, and then when Jules said vegetarian chips please she went on to say I have to warn you the shellfish is cooked in the same oil as the vegetarian chips which kind of made us sit up a bit as it would and the next line she said and I, I wrote it down as we couldn't believe it I quote people are happy to break the rules Ooh. Then, if she couldn't dig the hole any deeper, she apologised and told us they just don't have the room to cater for purely vegetarian oil. So why are they advertising vegetarian chips? Oh, breathe. Time to talk Bake Off. And a contestant from 2018 who's always on the move. Karen Wright has recently returned from a month away travelling Europe with her husband John in a motorhome, which she documented on her social media, but is also going to be the subject of her first book, which she's working on at the moment. Since being back, she's taken a trip to London, and very soon she's off again, but this time on a coach. When I met her for the first time via Zoom, I had to ask, doesn't she like being at home? I do like to travel, even if it's a short journey. The anticipation of going somewhere, I get excited, you know. But I don't like being at home in winter time. I like being home in winter more than anything because I quite like winter. I like to batten down the hatches and quite like the short days. Mm -hmm. Well, I do. Funny that I do before Christmas because there's all that anticipation of the festivities and a lot of food baking and you know you draw the curtains and you get on with it. And then after Christmas, I'm not so fond of fond of the dark short days then uh, but yeah 
Yeah, I like travelling about. Where are you yeah. going on the coach? Swansea. My mum's Welsh, but she left Wales when she was about eight because of the she was evacuated in the war because Swansea was heavily heavily under attack and a lot of bombing and everything. So my father, my granddad, got an opportunity to move from the family from Wales up to Yorkshire for a job. Now my grandmother didn't want to come because she'd got all her sisters and everybody there. But uh, she was almost emotionally blackmailed by my grandfather because he said, well, you know, Miriam, if we move to Yorkshire, you can have the children back. They've been farmed out out of Swansea oh, into evacuated nearby towns in the countryside. Yeah. Um, so she used to visit them. She used to go on the bus on a, on a Sunday and visit her kids. So basically, she agreed. My grandmother died when she was only 61, unfortunately, but I remember her very well. I was nine when she died. And um, she longed for Wales. She never really... She spent the rest of her married life feeling up like a square peg in a round hole, I think. Anyway, so mum's still got cousins, but they're all getting on because my mum's 89. So she was keen to visit, so I suggested this, and her cousins are coming down and she's treating them to afternoon tea in the hotel. Oh, how lovely. Uh, we missed each other in Venice. Were you? Was it the same week we were there or you were the week before? Well, we went away for a whole month we went away on the 1st of June and we were sort of in France for the first week and then we went into Italy, but we didn't get to Venice until probably about the halfway through June. It was lovely. Oh. Have you been before? Oh, years and years and years ago. Could go again tomorrow. I'd love to go again tomorrow. I'd love to go because we went to Florence as well and it was so roasting. Well, not like they're having now, but it was <laughs> hot. I didn't want to queue for tickets and it was busy and bustling and everything. And I'm quite good when people take you in a city. I'm not a very, I'm not good on cities. So I'm quite, I like being led mm. on these tours. Like last year we went to the Dolomites on a coach with my mum again. And we'd got some really interesting local guides that took us everywhere around, explained everything. And you felt like you got loads out of that. So I think if I went back certainly to Florence, Venice as well, I'd like to be, on a, a guided tour mm. of it, I think, I think that would be better. Yeah. But I loved Venice. I loved it just because it was just it was the great vibe. It was astonishing, really. Mm. I mean, you've seen pictures, haven't you? You know, but when you actually see it for the first time with your own eyes, yeah, it Amazing. was crazy. Mm. You started yeah. off in France then, because you lived over there. Was it fifteen years in in France? We didn't live there. We didn't live there. We always maintained UK residency and had our house here. Mm. So in 2002, John's parents died and left him half the bungalow. And it was like a big lump of money that we'd never had. And we'd always been together on holidays to France, caravan and camping holidays. And um, one thing led to another. And we went for a little gander down to the uh, middle of France. Basically, we looked at a few properties just for a look like window shopping one day. But the last one we saw... I just knew, I just immediately knew that I wanted to have this house. And it took all of us, all the money, you know, like I've never really done that before because I'm quite careful. But we sort of went, we signed on the dotted line the very day. Good grief. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. I would never, I'd never recommend that to people because you could fall into all sorts of traps. We didn't have surveys. We didn't do anything. We just <laughs> bought it. I've realised recently that I've always followed my I get a, when I get a call or an instinctive feeling for something 
I will follow through on it immediately if I feel powerful, if it feels really, really, like at the moment I'm writing this book, but I don't feel as scared of it as I would if I was going to buy a second-hand car because <laughs> I feel it's, I feel it'll be the right thing, that it's a good thing for me to have done, yeah. the process. I've enjoyed it and it's just coming together now, but I'm not frightened of it, that's what I'm trying to say. And the house in France, it was a big investment, but it felt right, so we did it, and it was right, so we kept that right until 2018 visiting the house in France all the time for holidays. And then that was that until um, John wanted to retire because he's a lot older than me. So he wanted to retire properly. And that's when I got in interested in cake design. I used to see people on the internet doing it like you do, don't you? See, oh, so how do you do that? Mm. It tweaked my interest. So I started looking how to do things with cakes, leveling them, filling them, how you got that, how you got your buttercream on straight and, and modeling things. But I never really was interested in the baking as in I wasn't interested in learning how to do different bakes. I always just used Victoria's sponge. I've made one this morning, I made one yesterday. It's only Victoria's sponge, one's chocolate, one's really little, but that's it. So all my cakes were covered with all this well, fondant in them days, actually. <laughs> I wasn't selling them. I was giving them away to family just so I could do this as a hobby, but they were getting better. And that's when my daughter sent me the application form for Bake Off mm. 2017. And uh, I looked at it on the laptop, the application form, and I thought, well, I, I don't know how to do any of that, really. I only know how to do the Victoria sponge. I can make a Christmas cake, and I know how to make pastry, and I know how to make scones. More than that, I don't think I'd really ever done, because you can get through your whole life on that, can't mm -hmm. you, really? Yeah. That's yeah. basic stuff, basic classic stuff. Um, I was just closing the laptop, and that's when I had this, this chem again, this thing, like it's almost a challenge to myself. Well, though, Karen, how hard is it, though? How hard is it to learn that stuff if you really want to learn it? I'd got two months, so I just jumped out of bed, got all excited, went down here and said to John, I'm going to apply for Bake Off. I'm going to do all this. I've got two months. I'm going to go through everything that they're asking for. Um, and I did. I set myself a bread week, a pastry week, a cakes, <laughs> all that. And I just Googled all the recipes. I mean, there were none of my own recipes. I didn't know. I didn't know they even had to be for Bake Off. I just didn't know. Mm. So I just did all this, but I managed to knock out all this stuff. And it was hard work, really hard. So I got into it and I was taking my pictures. And they, each time I've done a bake, I'd go back on, I'd save my application and upload that picture. Tick, 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 tick. Finally got to the end and uh, filled it all out and sent it. What is it with you and this feeling then? Because that feeling came well, years and years ago, whether it was the first time you had the feeling, because you were working in a bank and then all of a sudden you packed it all up and then did... Well, that was that was, that was was less of a feeling, more of a, more of a love affair, I think that was, because I went to Greece with my friends, my girlfriends. I was working in a bank. I'd been married at 16 and uh, we'd split up. Got myself a little terrace and a mortgage. And this friend of mine, Caroline, she's still my best friend. She was at uni and they always going backpacking and that. She'd been the year before and she came back full of it. Oh, let's go, let's go, it's moving. And so eventually we saved up the money and we did go on a holiday. And that's where we met Stavros. Oh, <laughs> Stavros. Yeah, you couldn't write it, could you, you really? You couldn't get more couldn't Greek, could you, than a Stavros? No more Greek. I mean, it's so cheesy. <laughs> um, so me and Karen, the following year, not the other girl, but me, me, two Karens went back out again. Me, basically, so that I could spend time with him. Uh, but we worked there. I worked on a 
various things. We were chambermaiding and working in his bar and that. But the funniest one was when we both got jobs working on a private island that belonged to Stavros Niarchos. Ooh, if you don't know him, but you can Google him. He was Aristotle Onassis's arch rival in the shipping magnet world. Was he? So he was so we went as gamekeepers assistants. Oh. I mean what's the funniest thing about you, you don't know? Well, I was a gamekeeper's assistant, mate. I mean, I know nothing about game. But so but yeah, that that I'm very I listen more now. I think I think everybody gets it. I think a lot of people get inspiration or feelings, but that sometimes people are very wary about acting on it because it means changing your life mm. and changing things is scary. And most of people, I think, including me, sometimes prefer not to. But I, 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 I do if I feel it strongly enough. I'm prepared to well, to gamble. Get you do it. 2018, you on Bake Off. Five years now. It is five years. So uh, it's fair to say, what, mid-60s? And folk all ages are looking at you, seeing what you're up to, and you're you're doing it. I mean, it must seem very strange. You can't go anywhere, can you, unrecognised now? Oh, I can, you know. And no, there's no, there's no recognition around. I, I can't remember the last time anybody stopped me in the street. It's a good long time ago because it fades. And then when you tell me, I knew it, I knew it. I kept thinking, where do I know her from? <laughs> you look so familiar to me. Mm. So that's more it now. Unless people are following me on, on Instagram or, or any other platforms, you know. Mm. But the, now I look back on the last five years, I realise how, how naive I was when I came off the Bake Off and how, how I've sharpened up myself and changed things. When I came off, I'd been nervous about meeting people still. I, I was like, mm, you know, I don't know. I didn't know how to be. Um, not on stage, because I've always been able to click onto a click into a performance mode, if you like. Mm. But on a one-to-one, -one, maybe if I'd have been having this conversation with you then, I think I was still struggling with imposter syndrome a bit. Yeah, right. you, know, mm. but, you know, I've done this, but I don't really feel... Especially remember that I didn't really know much about baking, not really, I know a lot more now. Mm. So in the baking from and the kitchen from because obviously I've spent five years doing more and more of that, then I do know my way around a kitchen now and I, I can speak reasonably competently about it. But back then I felt like, Oh my god, you know, nobody knows that I'm, I wangled my way on and here I am trying to do things. Whereas now I feel I should be doing things. I'm okay. I'm, mm. a, you know, I've built in confidence, which is a very interesting thing. I think that somebody between the age of sixty and sixty-five suddenly becomes a fuller and more rounded and more confident person than they've ever been in the past. I think it's not just sixty between sixty and sixty-five. I think it can be anything from fifty plus when you become invisible, really, Karen. Yeah, I do think so, and I think think back to when I was just on the Bake Off halfway through and Love Productions were saying that we're going to introduce you to agents. This is my naivety. I remember now I smile at myself even. because I was thinking, oh, great, they're going to introduce us to our agents. How exciting. And they got us a ticket and we were halfway through transmission and we all had to go down to their offices in London and that. And I was expecting this introduction. I was thinking, oh, they're going to be the agents are going to be there, and I'll be shaking hands and I'll be chatting and I'll decide which one I'm having. It was a piece of A4 paper with the list of agents you could email and a reminder of you, you know, the, the vagaries of the contracts we'd got with them and what we could and we couldn't do. And then I was back on the train coming home thinking, 
oh but anyway i emailed every single agent and every single agent said no and i said i kept saying but why though i do know that other people who've got as far as me or less far have had a got agents mm. so what is it what is it about me that you that you don't think will work and i said is it i said to a few is it my age is it because i'm old and of course they said no no it's mm. just it's finding the niche de, 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 de. but you know i didn't set out to prove them wrong but i do now feel like i think well actually i've, I've lived for five years with more income generated by myself than I've ever had in my whole life. Mm. Up yours a bit, you know, to the agents who never wanted me in the first place. Do you still keep in touch with any of the Bake Off lot? Because you were very close to Terry, weren't you? I talk to Terry every day by WhatsApp, pretty much every day. So he and I have maintained a constant uh, relationship. So, yeah, he and I, yeah, good. Yeah, he's a good lad. He was a guest on um, a couple of weeks ago, Karen, was Terry. Oh, the dark asses never said. <laughs> <laughs> so Terry's keeping Shat Bagley a secret. Hmm. Uh, thank you to Karen for joining us and wishing her well with the book. Sounds a good one. It's about her and John's month-long trip with a day-to-day -day diary. 30 main meals you can cook in a caravan, a motorhome or a tent, all of them free. And regional recipes too. Definitely look out for that. I've got a couple of pals who've got a camper van. In fact, one of them's off to, to see another one tomorrow. They love it. But then equally, I've got another one who says there's no way she's going to the toilet in a cupboard. As I'm recording this, I'm off to Zumba tonight for the first time. Oh, yes. Uh, pal I'm going with has just let me know that she has her headband and leg warmers ready. I reckon after Cornwall, they'll probably be the only things that fit me. Time to chat Romanian cuisine with award-winning food writer and cookery teacher Irina Georgescu. Originally from Bucharest, Irina lives with her British husband in mid-Wales, which she says reminds her a lot of Transylvania and is the place she can switch off from the hustle and bustle of London, amongst other things. I write, I research for whatever I write for my books, and also it gives me a lot of uh, you know, time to come up with new courses and give people more about, you know, teach them Romanian cookery, but also travel inspiration. Every time I teach a course, it's not just like how you fold a pie or whatever, how you make cornmeal. It's about where to travel, where you get the best of these dishes, different regional differences as well. If you go to Transylvania, if you go to the South, to the Black Sea. so. So it's more like a conversation while we're cooking rather than certain skill because we're very much a European cuisine and we kind of make the pies the way we make them here in the UK, for instance, but not necessarily identical. But in terms of skills, uh, we can bake, we can uh, make, especially with cornmeal, cornmeal dishes, People don't know how to cook with cornmeal, so that's a very interesting course uh, I teach. And every time I can include something with cornmeal, I include it because I just want people to feel more confident. It's also gluten-free. It's just a beautiful ingredient, and we love it in Romania, so that's why I put it in all the time. You mentioned cornmeal. Is it right that in Romania it's almost in every meal? Uh, almost, almost, yeah. <laughs> uh, nicely put. Yes, it is almost. Um, it's also because uh, it's a very good 
plant to grow it grows everywhere it doesn't need a flat surface or vast areas and the climate is very good for cornmeal everywhere in romania uh, so it's part of the crops in the mountains but also in the plains and uh, you know everywhere it's also because it's gluten-free it doesn't require necessarily an oven to prepare a polenta it doesn't require yeast so it's a part of everyday meal traditional in the countryside because it's so easy to make and also is very filling so and also a very good flavor carrier so you put cornmeal polenta for instance in savory dishes next to the dishes we like to cook in the winter we like a lot of like stews and really comforting with a lot of mm. sauce you know and that polenta goes in and brings everything together, takes everything to the next level somehow. And it just carries all the flavors, everything we like to put in the stew, the meat flavors as well, really well, but also vegetable, because we do have a lot of vegetable dishes. We observe Lent quite often. In total, we have around an 80, uh, 180 days of Lent in a year. I couldn't believe Luckily, that. Luckily, not one after another. <laughs> I read it and I thought I, I had to reread it several times, 180 days. Half a year. It's because it's not just Christmas and Easter. We observe Lent for saint days. Mm. So obviously we have quite a few saint days. And also every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, it's a Lent day. So Lent as, uh, is a bit different than fasting. Lent is when you don't eat any meat or any kind of animal product. Mm. Uh, and sometimes people don't even want to eat any kind of fat, even if it comes from seeds. So oil, for instance, they don't use oil because uh, it's like from olive oil or sunflower seeds or anything. So that is Lent. So if you have Lent for, I don't know, 30 days, 44 days or whatever, you don't eat any of this, but you can eat whenever you want. Fasting is when you don't eat anything during the day, but then you are allowed to eat everything you want after sunset. So meat, sweets, oil, fat, whatever. Mm. So that is the difference between Lent and fasting. So we usually have Lent rather than fasting. Uh, and it's mostly in Greek Orthodox religion. In Romania, we have many religions because we have many different communities living there. So the Catholics in Romania, for instance, observe Lent, but they are allowed butter and cheese and yogurt. They are not allowed meat, but they are allowed the rest. So <laughs> uh, they always think uh, and laugh at us, you know, the others. They, they just say, no wonder you end up in hospital after 44 <laughs> days of Lent, because you kind of go from zero to hero. You have uh, 20 dishes on your on your table and you just go and eat every everything <laughs> do, do you observe it over here in the uk at all Irina? i i try uh not always it was the same back home um very rarely i managed to actually observe lent for christmas and easter in the <laughs> same year basically i actually more often observe lent at easter rather than christmas because I just like all the ritual and such a rich and beautiful Easter table with beautiful dishes at Easter, you know, because it's basically the only time we eat lamb. Lamb is seen as a seasonal meat in Romania. Mm -hmm. And obviously you only have lamb 
in spring. <laughs> Later, it's not. It's a, it turns into mutton, and we eat a lot of mutton as well. Um, but in spring, we respect the dishes made with lamb, and we cook everything from lamb. So offal, everything. It's mm. just uh, the whole philosophy of uh, uh, from nose to tail kind of thing. And every dish is very special. So obviously. I observe Lent, and my husband is British, as, as you know, and he observes Lent with me. If I don't cook with meat or with cheese or anything like that, he eats exactly what I eat. And I think he does it for more like a detox. <laughs> I do it for the kind of the beauty of the whole process, because mm. um, you appreciate and you enjoy more the celebration of Easter if you go through a bit of pain before that. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. Is, does he go with it because he can't cook himself, Irina? Is this what we're really saying? He can cook because I, I met him quite later <laughs> in, in life and he survived, obviously. <laughs> uh, so I always make sure I introduce something that is closer to home for him as well. But he's quite happy to eat whatever I make. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised because your dishes are wonderful. Carpathia was your first book to huge acclaim. The current one, Tava. Now, is that Romanian for tray? Is it, I couldn't work out, is it tray or trays? It's a tray. So uh, Tava is a baking book. However, not only baking book, because a Tava is a, a baking tray in Romanian, but also a serving tray, like a, like a tray in English as well. So the fact that I wasn't necessarily, I didn't have to put only baking recipes was a good thing, because we do have um, in Romania a lot of dishes that don't require baking and are still desserts. So I also have a whole chapter in Tava with fritters uh, or, or with uh, noodles and grains, things that we use in sweet dishes. Plum dumplings, for instance, absolutely delicious. Fried breads, the Hungarian langosh. In a way, I also crossed the border, obviously, from Romania into Hungary, because we have a lot of shared history anyway and from Romania to Germany, because we have a lot of German uh, communities in Romania. Starting from Tava, actually, I always want to include a little bit of history, a little bit of context to the recipe. So you can actually understand why we eat the way we eat and what are the regional particularities, for instance. Uh, you know, some communities where kind of isolated by communism and only after that they kind of started to re rediscover themselves. Mm. So what we find at the moment is a very kind of quintessential German cuisine isolated in Transylvania that hasn't evolved the way the German cuisine evolved in Germany. So you kind of go back to, to the basic and to a very old German cuisine if you like. So it's fascinating to find those those recipes and when they were related to baking, I put them in Tava. So you can actually see uh, what happened to a dish in Romania and what's going on in, uh, let's say in Germany or in Hungary with the same dish. I was fascinated with the use of fruit for pickling and, and smoking. Because we have such an amazing climate in Romania. We, we have loads of vegetables, uh, you know, mid-summer or towards the end of the, the autumn as well, a lot of fruit. So 
we need to preserve them. We add dry fruit, for instance, and we smoke fruit. So we love smoked cherries, smoked prunes. And also we preserve in brine. So not necessarily the, uh, the vinegar pickle, which is usually the pickle is with vinegar and the brine fermented ingredient. But not all vegetables are good for, for fermentation. So obviously peppers being a, like a, a soft flesh and stuff, they are better for vinegar, for pickles rather than fermenting with brine. So we do ferment in brine, cabbages, green tomatoes, cucumbers, we pickle with vinegar, uh, peppers, and they are usually, and when, um, and aubergines, and they are usually stuffed, whether with uh, cabbage or uh, different, um, like carrots and cabbage and walnuts. And it's, an, it's a beautiful world, mm. you know, mm. if you have time to stuff everything individually and put them in jars and sterilize everything. And it's very, very rewarding when then when you don't have things in season, you take a jar out of the pantry, the cellar, and you just open it and put all those beautiful salads on the table. Yeah. I saw that you could pickle, is it watermelon and also grapes? I've never heard of that. And quince. Quince is very good uh, fermented, uh, like in brine. It's, it's very, very nice. You could put some garlic in there as well. Quince is perfect because it a, it's a tough fruit anyway. So imagine it uh, mellowing and softening in the brine usually. But grapes, absolutely, they get really fizzy if you open them at the right time, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, watermelon and cantaloupe as well. So they get really fizzy and it's a sweet and sour play on flavors, basically, because obviously the watermelon, the cantaloupe are quite sweet. And then you ferment them in salty water and they just get uh, all these flavors get together and it's they are very very good some of our other um, you know watermelons you can slice them as well they do disintegrate a little bit but you know it's very hard to actually put a recipe that everyone will be successful at because it's more about adjusting and knowing your own pickling environment here and open opening them at the right time so i will never put a recipe for fermenting watermelon <laughs> no no not at all and then i read somewhere that some houses never had chimneys the smoke would just go up into the attic or the loft and that's where they would put their products to to smoke absolutely i mean that's why they didn't have chimneys because they needed all that smokiness to go up and smoke the sausages smoke the ham <laughs> smoke the food smoke the cheese, smoke everything. So it's really a very good uh, way, especially when you uh, observe Lent, we're coming back to Lent, obviously, you need some flavor in whatever you make. If, can you imagine if you don't even use oil, then what do you eat, you know? So, and smokiness and sourness are very good ways to add flavor to a simple dish that it's basically just whatever. I mean, traditionally, not now, because now you go to the supermarket and you have everything from Spain, you know, so that's, that's not the point. So I'm not talking about today. <laughs> Do they have a Romanian embassy in this country? Because I think they need to sign you up to, uh, re <laughs> to represent them, Irina. Uh, so we do have embassies everywhere in the world and they do have in, in London as well. And in, in their own way, they bit by bit support me. But, but you see, in Romania, People who cook are not exactly 
a good example of uh, to have a career in cooking or anything like that. So if you are an artist, you paint something or you make a poem or something, it's, you know, it's better than if you cook a dish, you know. So it's funny because at home it's very interesting. We do expect, even from our own, you know, parents, um, moms and grandmothers, we do expect everyone to cook and to give us good food. But, you know, the appreciation is not there necessarily for the people who do it. Well, just mention the name Nigella Lawson to them because she adores you. We'll have definitely seen the blog that she did about Tarva. I mean, it was, she, she doesn't do that lightly, does she? I mean, she's a, possibly your number one fan. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so grateful to her. Nigella supports a lot of authors like me who are at the very beginning of their career and do something that obviously is difficult. So she is absolutely amazing and I'm very grateful to her and her team as well. I've never imagined, believe me, I took screenshots of when Nigella liked my post or something and, uh, and I, I think I'm going to put them on the wall, frame them and put them on the wall. It's just absolutely surreal. And that's why I'm very, very grateful. It's amazing to see Romania, that post liked by so many people. It's just so important to be associated with something positive. It's just amazing. Thank you to Irina. Her book Tava is available now and is also the recipient of the 2023 James Beard Foundation Book Award in the Baking and Desserts category. I know when we first started this podcast off, we mentioned James Beard. He was ahead of the game, really. So a huge accolade and much deserved. The courses Irina runs, one in the spring, one in the autumn, will be announced on her website, which I will put on Shat Bagley's Facebook and Instagram pages. Thank you to all my guests today. And as always, I do love hearing from you, be it via the social media or email podcast at theshackbagley.co.uk. And if you feel the urge to leave a review, please don't fight it. So that's it for another week. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Right then, leg warmers and headband. (laughs) Wish me luck.